but never does. Ever, ever seen something like that? I have. Uh, some years ago, and the, maybe I might have told this story before, but it bears repeating because it's, it's applicable. Um, I, I really enjoy tomatoes. I'm a huge fan of tomatoes, which, by the way, are a fruit, not a vegetable. So I've been told, which I think is silly. It should be a vegetable. But they call it a fruit for whatever reason. Anyway, um, I really like tomatoes, fresh tomatoes. Maybe some of you do as well. Um, and uh, I, growing up, we always grew tomatoes at my house and in, in our backyard. And so when I moved here to Lufkin, I wanted to grow tomatoes too when I moved into our, my house where I had my own property. And so I planted a garden at the back of my house. And one of the, the things that was in that garden, actually the majority of it, because it's a fairly small garden, was tomatoes. And... Um, I remember growing these tomatoes and being excited because I would see all this green vegetation, these green leaves and, you know, flowers and all that kind of stuff, which I presumed were going to become nice, delicious red tomatoes. Problem was, they never produced tomatoes. They would all die before they would ripen. The tomatoes would, they'd rot actually. They had a fungus. Uh, in the soil, I was told. Anyway, those tomato plants never produced tomatoes, good tomatoes that I could eat, that we could eat as a family. It was very disappointing and kind of made me angry, actually, on a few occasions because I spent a fair amount of money and spent a fair amount of time trying to make those dumb tomatoes plants work. Well, they never did. Well, just as I was frustrated by tomato plants that were supposed to produce tomato fruit, but didn't, God is more than frustrated. He is angry when people who claim to be Christians aren't producing spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit. That is not, you know, not like tomatoes, but um, spiritual fruit would be things like love or faith or patience or kindness or self-control, fruit of the Spirit, which we read of in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, uh, 21 and 22, I believe it is, 22. God doesn't like it, because uh, it's actually mocking him by professing to be a Christian who must bear fruit, but not then bearing fruit. So we're going to talk about that in this passage today. Before I get to my points... Just remind you, uh, actually uh, tell you a little bit about the background here. First of all, the book of Colossians was written to the people of Colossae, a little town in Asia Minor, not too far from uh, Ephesus, I believe, east of Ephesus. Um, But uh, a little small town, fairly small town, um, but significant town. And it was written by the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit ultimately, but the Apostle Paul was the human writer. And it was written... Between 20, uh, six, uh, excuse me, 61 A.D. and 63 A.D. I don't know how scholars know that, but they apparently do. And uh, that's, the, that's the time frame. So about 30 years after Jesus was uh, ascended into heaven after his resurrection. And it was written by Paul during his first Roman imprisonment in Rome. Now there are many parallels between Colossians and two of Paul's other prison epistles, the ones he wrote from prison are called prison epistles, and the parallels 
uh, the two uh, prison epistles that there's a lot of parallels between Colossians and these other ones with is Ephesians and Philemon. Uh, there are quite a few parallels, and I may, may occasionally call attention to some of them. Well, like uh, Ephesians in particular, the first half of Colossians is doctrinal. It's doctrine. The first two chapters is just essentially doctrine. But then the last half, and this is likewise with uh, Ephesians, the last half of Colossians is very practical in its content. So doctrinal, first half, practical in its last half, by and large. There's an obvious theme to uh, this letter uh, that Paul and the Holy Spirit have in mind, and that is the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the God-man. He is preeminent, um, which is to say he is first and foremost in everything, not just in this world, but in the entire universe. He is um, the end-all to be-all, if we can put it that way, according to Paul and the Holy Spirit. And not only does he hold up the preeminence of Christ, but he says the person who is united to Christ, that is the Christian, his life and behavior should reflect the preeminence of Jesus in the way that he lives uh, and acts and thinks and so on. Well, one of the major purposes of the letter, not only to uphold the preeminence of Christ, but as he's, uh, he's holding up the preeminence of Christ and exalting Christ, um, because of the purpose of this letter in, in the midst of fulfilling the purpose of this letter, and its primary purpose is to, refri- to refute excuse me, an early form of Gnosticism that was beginning to make inroads amongst professing believers, at least, there in Colossae. Um, sometimes it's called proto, which means early or first Gnosticism. We don't know if it was exactly Gnosticism, but it, it has a lot of elements that are similar to a later, more fully developed Gnosticism that came some 30 or 40 years, 50 years later, that was very had very clear teaching that was very anti-Christian, although it tried to pretend to be Christian. Um, and this, there are elements of that uh, later form of Gnosticism we find here uh, in Col- Colossae that Paul is refuting. Um, this uh, heresy, we're going to call it that, uh, proto-Gnostic heresy combined elements of Greek philosophical speculation, Jewish legalism, not Biblical Judaism, but Jewish legalism. And finally, Eastern or Oriental mysticism. So, Greek philosophy, Jewish legalism, and Eastern mysticism kind of all wrapped up and uh, smushed together into this this religious uh, heresy that uh, was being, certain teachers were trying to foist on the Christians there. And this heresy had a very low view of material things, in particular of the human body. Uh, they denigrated the flesh, not the flesh as in sinful nature, but the physical material of which we are made. Matter was a bad thing to them, much like later Gnosticism, matter was a bad thing. Everything, anything that's spiritual is good, anything that's material is bad. And that was, uh, at least to some degree, what was being exhibited here. Um, 
important components of this heretical teaching were dietary regulations, much like Old Testament Judaism, which is biblical, not heretical. Uh, but dietary regulations were a part of it. Circumcision was incorporated into their this view. So there's the Jewish legalism stuff. And then there were some other rituals as well that were uh, important to this, this view that was Paul is trying to refute. So that's enough of the background. I just wanted to give you that. I won't necessarily give you that every time we're in Colossians, but I wanted to at least give you that up front on this first go around. So, three points we're going to look at in the remainder of our time together. First, we're going to look at what the gospel proclaims, as found in this text. Secondly, we're going to look at what the gospel requires, again, as found in this text. And then finally, we're going to look at what the gospel yields, again, as articulated by Paul in this text. So first, what the gospel proclaims is set forth in this passage. Um, He starts out uh, 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 and refers to it in verse 5 there, the last the very last portion of verse 5, uh, I'll read verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you, this is in the middle of a sentence now, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So there you see he refers to the gospel, the good news of Christianity, as the truth. Good news is only found where when it's true. Uh, it's not good news if it's not the truth. I'm just stating the obvious here, but um, it, it can only be good news to us if it is, in fact, true. And, uh, and the Christian message, as articulated by the, uh, the New Testament writers in particular, is the truth. And anything outside of that message is falsehood. And so Paul is making the point here, again, the Holy Spirit, that the gospel is something that is true about several things. First of all, about God. The gospel makes statements and declarations about who God is, um, about who we are, and about our situation because of who God is and who we are, and also about uh, Jesus, and we'll get to that uh, in a little bit. But first, the gospel tells us things about God. First of all, uh, a number of things that are found in the Christian message, Christian teaching, and I'm not going to cite all these verses or read all these verses that make these points, but I will make the points. Um, we have to present the true God to somebody when we're presenting the gospel or believing the gospel ourselves. Who is that God? First of all, he's the God who's the only God. He's not one of many, like Hindus would say or Mormons would say. Um, he is the only God. There is no other God. All other so-called gods are false. He is the true one. He's the only one. And uh, that needs to be understood by anybody who believes the gospel. One needs to believe and understand that he is the creator and sustainer of all the creation. Nothing that has been created um, exists in and of itself, but only because God has created it, brought it into being, and willed that it should remain in being, as it were. I can put it that way. This God who is, is a God, and again, this is the God who needs to be embraced when one embraces the gospel, who is one in his essence, but three in his personhood. That is essential. That is the true God. 
a God who is one in his essence and one in his person, and there are churches around here that teach that, is a false God. It is a different God than the biblical God. That God does not save. The triune God, who is one God in three persons, one in essence, three in person, that is the one who is good news. Is the giver of the good news, I should say. We also need to understand that what is true about God is that He is morally perfect. That is to say, holy and pure. And therefore, because He is holy, He hates that which is unholy, which is sinful, which is unrighteous, not good. And this God also, who is the giver of the good news, is a God who is perfectly just, which means He must punish all deviations from his law. As the lawgiver, all wrongdoing must be punished one way or the other by him. Otherwise, he's not just and he is not God. That's the truth about who God is. And there are other things that could be mentioned, but I would say those are some of the most essential things that we need, by the way, you, if you're going to talk to somebody about Christ, need to not just jump to and make assumptions about what people believe, especially nowadays about God, uh, but need to talk about that. Spend some time talking about these things, that He is one God, that He's the creator of all, that He's one in three, and that He's perfectly holy and He's perfectly just. Because if you don't understand those things, you're not going to get the gospel right. You're not going to get the truth in the end if you leave those things out. The, the truth is also that's found in the gospel is the truth not only about who God is, but about who we are. First of all, that we are God's uh, uh, greatest creation, if we can put it that way. We, unlike any of the other creatures, are made in His image, and therefore we are capable of relating to Him and He to us. We can have relations, read covenantal relations, with God and He with us because we are made in His image. That's important to know that we are not like the dogs or the chimpanzees at the zoo. But we must also understand, and the Gospel teaches, that we are sinners. That we have all um, missed the mark of perfection, and by a long shot, by the way, and... uh, we have missed the mark. We have, we have uh, broken God's laws. Uh, and thus we have sinned and done what is evil in His sight. And that at a minimum needs to be, uh, is, is found in any good uh, uh, proclamation of the gospel, any true proclamation of the gospel. The truth is also that, that the gospel gives is also the truth about our situation. Because we are made in His image but have rebelled against Him, through sin, uh, and that is that our sinful nature and the subsequent sins that flow from that sinful nature of ours greatly offend God and have alienated us from Him. And also, the guilt of those sins that we have committed and of our sinful nature has made us justly deserving of God's eternal punishment in hell. Hell must be discussed in any true presentation of the gospel. There is no good news unless you understand what you've been delivered from when you embrace that good news. And then also, there is nothing, and this is another 
truth about our situation prior to our coming to becoming Christians, there's nothing that we ourselves can do to avoid experiencing God's eternal judgment on account of our sins. We are helpless to save ourselves. This is the this is the truth, the truths of the gospel. But the gospel then goes on, after explaining those truths found in various passages of the scriptures, to proclaim the truth about God's astonishing graciousness. That he is a God, not only of holiness and justice, but a God of grace. And the verse 6 speaks of this toward the end of the uh, verse. He says, Even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. That's what it means to come to Christ is to understand that Christ is there because of the grace of God. That's the only reason you have a Christ to believe in, because God is gracious. That is to say, He is willing, and not just willing, but eager to forgive, love, and bless sinners deserving of His fury, His hatred, and His curse. He's a God of grace. Amen, indeed. The Gospel proclaims the truth not only about uh, who we are and about uh, uh, who God is and about our situation apart from God and about the grace of God, that God is a God of grace, but it then goes on and talks about the truth concerning the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. Uh, that's language I'm borrowing from verse 5 there. Um, let me start in verse Let me back up to verse 3 and then read verse 5. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you, notice where this hope is laid up for you, in heaven. In heaven. This hope, that's laid up for you and me is not a concept. It's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a person who is the hope. And by the way, this is hope, not I hope it rains tomorrow, but this is a hope that is a certainty. And this hope is the one who now sits at the right hand of the Father who occupies, in other words, the place of greatest honor and preeminence in heaven and indeed the universe, and that is the enfleshed and exalted God-man, Jesus Christ. That is the hope that is laid up for you and me in heaven. The second person of the Trinity, who willingly took to himself our full humanity, and uh, being sinful is not a part of being human, It is for all of us now at post-fall, but Adam was not sinful originally. And Jesus certainly was never sinful. He became fully human without sin. And then he lived a sinless, perfectly obedient life. He suffered the infinite wrath of God. He offered up his infinitely valuable life to God. And then he overcame the powers of death and hell in his resurrection. And he did all this on behalf of and in the place of all those 
whom he willed to save. That is the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is Jesus. The substitute for all those who will believe in him. That is the good news. That there is a substitute who can take your place in hell. He took that. He endured hell fully and absorbed it on the cross. To take your place in terms of living the perfectly obedient life that God has to see, but you can't live and I can't live. You need somebody to live it for you. He did that. He's your hope. He's your certainty. Who's now in heaven. Preeminent place of honor and glory in heaven. And now, as we talked about in Sunday school, is making intercession for all of his people. Well, that's what the gospel proclaims. It proclaims the truth about the grace of God in Christ. But secondly, this passage speaks of what the gospel requires in verses 6 and 7. It requires, first of all, that we trust in Jesus Christ alone as our Savior. Verse 4 speaks of Him as uh, the Savior. Uh, uh, Since you have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. It alludes to that, I should say. He is, he is one who is, um, is the one who rescues us from the eternal divine wrath which we justly deserve and would otherwise get because we are sinners who have offended God. You must embrace Him as your Savior. You must have faith in Him to save you. And only then does it become good news to you. But you must not just have Jesus as your Savior, as the one who rescues you from the hell that we all deserve. But he must also be your Lord. You say, where's that? He has to be, the. he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice not, he's just not Lord Jesus Christ. He's our, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the believer's Lord. You must not just embrace Jesus as your way to avoid going to hell. Oh yes, you must embrace Him for that. But He is not just the Savior of those whom He saves. He's the Lord of those whom He saves. This means, to have Him as Lord, means that um, we are relinquishing, when when we embrace Him as Lord, we are relinquishing control of our lives to Jesus and choosing to live the remainder of our days in humble submission to His will, to His Lordship. He is our King, deliberately, intentionally, by our choice, our King, who rules us. To put this language more biblically, we must, if we embrace Jesus as our Lord, come after Him um, by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Him. That's lordship. That's the language, of course, that is very familiar to all of us. Uh, Luke 9, 24, Mark 8, 38, I think it is, and 
also in Matthew's Gospel as well. This is language that he is... Uh, but we have to we have to deny ourselves. That's 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 relinquishing control, <clears throat> saying I'm no longer in charge. You're in charge, Jesus. A conscious decision to lose our lives, metaphorically speaking, for His sake. The text even says that. I'll, I'll look that uh, that the Luke's version of that. He, it's Luke. Um, where is it here? Luke nine twenty four. He says, For whosoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever, there it is, loses his life, which is, which is explaining what he just said in the previous passage, coming after him involves denying self, taking up one's cross daily, and following him. Uh, but whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, there it is, for my sake, he is the one who saves it. Or shall save it. A conscious decision to lose our lives for his sake and then, and then to emulate, which is to say, obey Jesus by emulating his moral walk. So, let me ask you. Have you, as a decision and a commitment of your heart, trusted Jesus to save you from God's just judgment of your sins. Have you done that? Have you also personally and deliberately and consciously trusted Jesus to be the Lord of your life? To say, Lord, I defer to you. What do you want in this situation? I'll do what you want me to do in this situation. What is it? And, and, and do that daily. Quote from Luke. <coughs> Have you done that? If you say, well, I've done one, but I haven't done the other, you haven't done the other. I mean, you haven't done the first, rather. Jesus is not uh, the Savior of those whom he's not also the Lord of. Yes, this is Lordship salvation that you're hearing. It's biblical, that's why you're hearing it. This is what the gospel requires, that you trust, and trust solely in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. But thirdly, this passage not only speaks of uh, what the gospel proclaims and what it requires, it thirdly proclaim, it speaks of what the gospel yields, meaning in the heart of those who embrace it. And this is found in verse 8 of our passage. Where we read... <clears throat> Did I say verse 8? No, it's not verse 8. Verse 6. <clears throat> the, the previous language in verse 5, uh, in, the word, in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it. And understood, read, believed, the grace of God in truth. Since you were Christians, the gospel has been bearing fruit in your life and increasing, he says. Speaking to the Colossian believers. The gospel, when believed, yields good spiritual fruit. As defined by God, by the way. 
Not by the world or, or even you and me, but by God. It yields good spiritual fruit. These fruit are byproducts. They are products, byproducts, of believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. They are also evidences of a truly converted heart, which will necessarily be produced, in some measure at least, in the life of a true Christian. Without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. That's what uh, the sanctification is a reference to, reference to those moral, uh, those spiritual fruit, uh, those evidences. There are some churches, actually quite a few, sad to say, that teach that a person is justified or saved by merely professing to believe in the truths of Christianity, giving mental assent to those truths. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the only hope of sinners, and Yes, I believe that he's God, the God-man. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And they believe that merely professing to believe those truths, even when such a profession of faith subsequently produces no tangible spiritual fruit afterwards, and they would say, oh, you're still saved. You, you prayed the prayer. You walked the aisle. You signed the decision card. If you did that, if you made that decision, you're saved. You look just like a non-Christian, but, but you're, you're saved because you, have, you gave assent to those truths. Folks, this I trust you know this. That is patently unbiblical teaching. It's evil, I would suggest, because it leads people to believe things that will lead their souls to eternal destruction and their bodies as well. No. The gospel, when believed, yields spiritual fruit to some degree. Maybe not a lot. But really, there will be some fruit in the true uh, that the gospel will yield when believed. One of the fruit that will necessarily be produced, that's referenced in this passage, Uh, in the life of a person who truly believes the gospel, is a genuine love for his fellow believer. Believers, I should say. It's spoken of in verse 4 and in verse 8. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and notice he couples these two things together, and the love which you have for all the saints. You have faith in Christ, uh, and you have a love for all the saints. In verse 8, he commends them again, and he uh, Epaphras has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Verse 8. Love for your fellow Christians is not an optional thing. It must be there in the Christian's life. John um, speaks about this in 1 John. He says in 1 John 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Notice the word because. You know that you passed out of uh, of death into life, meaning have new life in Christ, because 
we love the brethren. Then again in chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, meaning his Christian brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 20 of 1 John. Now, if you're a Christian right now, the love that you do have, in some measure, for other Christians, played absolutely no part in your being justified when you were justified. Justification is forgiveness of sin and declaration by God of you as righteous in His sight. Your love for the brethren played no part in justifying you. Most people use the word saved. I'm more and more moving away from that and want to just call that point when I'm born again justified. So it played no part. But God's justification of you will and must subsequently be followed by, among other Christ-like virtues, a love for your Christian brothers and sisters. In this sense, that it must follow necessarily on the heels of justification, in this sense, having a love for fellow Christians is necessary for you to go to heaven. Now, the love, the evidence of love for Christian brothers and sisters is not the antecedent, meaning prior condition, for salvation like faith is. Faith is the prior condition to be justified. But love for the brethren is what uh, is sometimes referred to as a consequent condition of salvation. It is a consequence of justification that is necessarily produced. But it is a condition of the final salvation, which is going to heaven. It is necessary to love, folks. It's not an option for you or me. And you've got to love the people that aren't exactly like you. You've got to love people in the church who you wouldn't be drawn to necessarily. Just naturally. And you even got to love the people that are prickly in the church. That have some rough edges that you scrape up against and aren't particularly comfortable with when you do that. You don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. But what does such genuine, true love for a fellow believer look like? Well, first of all, it will show itself by being genuinely concerned about how your brother or sister is, is doing, spiritually and otherwise. You care. You care. You're not indifferent to the plight of somebody, the struggles that somebody else is having. You actually are concerned. And you want to, your heart goes out to them, so to speak. And not just does your heart go out to them, but that going out of your heart to them in love causes you to do what you can to help them in their need. 
And not perfectly, but you do something. You don't just sit there and go, oh, I'm so sorry. If you can, you try to do something. You at least will pray for him. Lift him up before the throne and say, Lord, would you please help so-and-so in, in their sorrow or their, their, uh, their temptation? It'll do something like take time to spend with the person, talking with them, him or her. Being in their presence when they are lonely or need some a listening ear. And taking the time out of your schedule that you would otherwise fill with productive things or things you want to do, not doing because you love this person and you're going to take time to sit down with him or her and listen. Or give advice. Biblical advice. Or maybe just sage advice of a Ben Franklin sort. Sometimes that's not necessarily biblical, but it's good. And you will love, genuine love, you'll be willing to give of yourself in some way to that person. Time, energy, perhaps money. Patience, forbearance. <laughs> Sometimes that's giving. You're giving them forbearance. You want to clock them, but you don't. You know, or you want to, you want to give them a, an earful uh, because they're, they're not particularly uh, pleasant to be around at the moment, but you don't. Because I love this person, and this is not the time. Sometimes it is the time. But you're willing to go sometime, this is not going to be helpful right now for me to chide this person for their, their struggle, you know, the bad attitude that's kind of coming out in their struggle, right now, at least. And that's hard to do, because sometimes, you know, we want to, we want to say, you know, you need to get your act together. And you want a lecture. Sometimes it's easier to do that than it is to just take it. Love is willing to take it when it's appropriate. So, do you, do you have a sincere, not perfect, but a sincere love for not just a couple of Christians, but generally speaking for the Christians in your life. Do you care about people around you in this room? And not just a select few. Do you care about people in other communions, other churches, that is to say, but who are genuine believers, who are part of the, the greater church, um, do you care about them too? Do you, do you want what's best for your Christian friends in other churches? And your family? You see, you and I, we need to love people. Especially the brethren. Indeed, we're called to love our enemies. We certainly have to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not perfectly, because that's not possible this side of heaven, but truly. Other fruit that will necessarily be produced by the gospel when it is truly believed by someone, um, in addition to love for the brethren, uh, 1 John, uh, John in 1 John, gives 
two other evidences uh, that are, will be found in the life of a person who has truly believed the gospel. In addition, to, and he mentions, and I already read those, um, he mentions love for the brethren. If you don't love the brethren, you don't love the Lord. You're not a Christian. He mentions, secondly, that there will be present in a true believer of the gospel a concerted desire and indeed effort to keep God's commands. Not just the ones that are we're comfortable with or we like, but all of them. If you look at 1 John 2, 3-6, through 6, I read this about once every couple months for one reason or another, uh, so I know you've heard it, but First uh, John 2, starting in verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a, there it is again, liar. You're lying to yourself. If you, if you say you know him and you're not keeping his commandments, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Then again, over in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, no one who is born of God practices sin. doesn't mean they don't sin ever, but they don't practice sin. The one who is born of God, who's born again, who's justified by the grace of God through the Spirit's work. No one who is born of God practices sin because his, God's seed, abides in him and he cannot live in sin. I'm inserting that into the translation here because it's appropriate. He cannot live in sin, which is to say do it habitually, because he's born of God. By this we know, excuse me, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, read, strives to obey, is not of God. Nor the one who does not, notice again, love his brother. Neither one of those, disqualified. If those two things aren't present in your life, to some degree, you are not a Christian. Doesn't make any difference what your church says, anything. You got to love your brethren, and you got to strive, be striving to keep the commands. We can't keep them perfectly. You all know that, but it is. So he's not talking about perfect obedience, but he's talking about striving after it, working to put off sinful tendencies in your life, working to put on Jesus-like behavior. Generally speaking, would you say that you are striving to obey God's commands as they're found in Scripture? Are you striving? Are you wrestling with all of the ones, even the ones that are really hard to obey in? Are you taking it seriously? God says you need to do this, even though you don't naturally want to do that. Or you've got to stop doing this, even though part of you really enjoys doing whatever that thing is. Are you taking those commands seriously? And, and doing something about it. Fighting the good fight. If you're a Christian, you will. If you're not doing it, you're not a Christian. If there's no desire to obey and effort to obey. And then the third evidence found in 1 John that will be found, he says, uh, in the life of a person who has truly believed the Christian message, the gospel, is that he believes certain fundamental doctrines and rejects certain others that are unbiblical. So he has biblical doctrines. Specifically, biblical doctrine 
regarding who the Lord Jesus is. So look at 1 John again. Chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. We read there. Who is... He's just been talking about um, antichrists, uh, false false prophets who used to be in the church and were uh, no longer in the church because they were not of us. So they were in covenant, but they were covenant breakers, and they pr- proved that they were covenant breakers by leaving the church. They were not truly of us. And then he says down in verse 22, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah? That's a very pregnant phrase right there. To believe that Jesus is the Messiah is to, among other things, believe what Isaiah says, which I'm going to read to you as soon as I find it. What Isaiah says in Isaiah uh, uh, 9 about the Messiah, and this, well, this verse that we hear all the time at Christmas time, uh, excuse me, at Advent, not Advent, what's yeah, you know what I mean. Um, verse 6, Isaiah 9. For a child, that is to say, a baby, uh, a human child, will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The Messiah is the God-man. You must believe that. That's the only Jesus that saves. That's correct understanding of who uh, Christ is. Let me keep reading there back in 1 John. Um, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he says. The one who denies the Father and the Son. And by the way, when you deny the Son that he is the Christ and properly, you are also denying the Father as well. I'll say something about that in a minute. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son, meaning rightly, has the Father also. You see, you have to have a right understanding of who the Son is, and you have to embrace that right understanding. Uh, uh, otherwise, you don't have the Gospel. You don't know the good news if you don't embrace that. But by embracing the right understanding of Jesus, you also necessarily have to have a correct God view of who God is. Jesus is the second person of a triune being who is one being but three persons. Having a correct doctrine of Christ necessitates you have a correct doctrine of God Himself in the Trinity. You gotta have both. If you don't have the Son right, you don't have the Father also, which is which is what I just read there. If you go over to chapter four, verses two and three, this also makes the point uh, of first John. First John four uh, verse two. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses uh, and I think this is better rendered, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ, who has come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess this Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. And then over in chapter 5, verse 1, once again, doctrine about Christ. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, there it is again, is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Again, Isaiah, uh, alluding, I think, to Isaiah 9-6. you got to get Christ and God right, or you don't have the 
the gospel. You don't have the truth. Jehovah's Witnesses don't have the truth. The Mormons don't have the truth. There are other groups that do not have the truth, the UPC. They don't have the truth. Are you, are you here believing in the biblical God? Are you believing in the biblical Jesus? You must, or you are not saved. Well, verse 6 also mentions not only the importance of bearing uh, this good spiritual fruit that we've just looked at, but doing so increasingly, it says there in verse 6, that spiritual growth must be tangible and increasing is evidenced in a couple of different passages in addition to the one we're looking at here. It's confirmed by what Peter says over in 1 Peter chapter, uh, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1 where we read starting in verse 4 I'll read all the way down through verse 11. For by these he, and this is uh, God here uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 4. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them, by those promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. And then he says this in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll just stop there. Actually, no, I'll keep reading. No, I'll stop there. Let's skip over also to um, Psalm 92. makes the point also, and there are some other passages that could also be brought to bear, but I'll stop with what I read out of Psalm 92, verses uh, 12 through 15. So Old Testament making the point, as well as the New Testament. 92, 12. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Notice, he will grow. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit, there it is, in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Making a point similar to the point Peter is making and that uh, Paul is making here in Colossians 1. Increasing the language used by Peter and Paul. Increasing is, as I like to say, referring to the overall spiritual trajectory of one's experience or life. This doesn't rule out the need for increasing holiness, uh, increasing bearing of spiritual fruit. This does not rule out the possibility of there being periods in a believer's life when he 
I'll put it this way, stalls out spiritually. Maybe even backslides for a time. That's possible. But such periods of stagnation or even regression don't last long. And the person who is exhibiting such rebellion, and that's what it is, at that moment when they are stagnating or regressing, has no right to think he is a Christian, even if he happens to be one. He doesn't have a right to think he's a Christian if he is stagnating and backsliding. It's not a good place to be, is what I'm trying to tell you. So, let me ask you, are you more... Christ-like than you were five years ago? Are you more Christ-like than you were ten years ago? Six months ago? You see, there should be at least incremental improvement, at least. That isn't to say there aren't, you know, Three steps forward and one step back, maybe even two. But there needs to be sanctification in your life. Otherwise, you're not in a good place. And you need to do some soul searching if that's the case. Now, let me say this in conclusion. None of us or all of us, I should say, rather, fall short of perfectly or even close to perfectly exhibiting these evidences of conversion that we've just looked at. Right doctrine, uh, keeping the commandments, and loving the brethren. Keeping the commandments is pretty broad, by the way. It covers a whole lot of ground. But none of us, no matter how godly, how much the Lord has worked in our lives, and how mature we are spiritually, None of us come close to perfectly exhibiting those qualities of conversion. But you need to know, and it's important that you grasp, that the Lord is willing and happy and eager to be gracious to you, to forgive you of your... um, somewhat half-hearted desire to obey of your um, less than stellar love for the brethren and even of doctrinal uh, error that might be not fundamental but doctrinal error that you have believed because of some foolishness on your part. God forgives forevermore those who are His. And you just, all you need to do is say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been stagnating. I've been backsliding even. Uh, I haven't been diligent about applying, using the means of grace like I should, reading my Bible, praying. And I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? And if you mean those words... Instantly, your fellowship with the Lord is restored. There's always grace. Jesus purchased that 
grace that's perpetual for those who are his. But you must belong to Christ in order to have access to it. But praise the, God, praise the Lord, we do in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these passages.